This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, Ontario Signals offshore wind moratorium will continue for years. This is a little odd because we all sort of know uh, the Ontario government's just sheer love affair with wind turbines. I mean, you drive anywhere, you're going to see them outside the the, uh, GTHA. And... Uh, you might remember when Dalton was on this tear to to uh, put them everywhere, uh, except his own writings, of course, except uh, liberal writings. Uh, that seems to be a, a, a sticking point. Everybody wants them, but the liberals. Is that true? Uh, so anyway, uh, they then said, well, let's put these things out in the lake. Let's put them offshore. I mean, that's where the wind is. The wind's offshore. So why not have them out there? I remember flying into Amsterdam and looking down and seeing, what the heck are all those sticks in the water? Oh, my goodness, they're wind turbines. Now, of course, apparently this is quite expensive because eh, not easy to get out to the middle of a lake and put up a wind turbine. It's quite costly, uh, even by Kathleen Wynne standards. So uh, anyway, like six years ago, Ontario abruptly imposed a moratorium on offshore wind projects, saying we needed more research. And now the government is signaling it will likely continue for several more years, even with all of its studies in hand. It's amazing that we have no problem putting them around people, but we're very cautious about putting them around fish. Uh, the moratorium has so far put the Liberal government on the hook for at least $28 million, and it faces another trial next year for another $500 million lawsuit over the February 11th decision. So why the difference in, you know, they love them on land, but they don't love them on water, and they're citing environmental reasons, which we all know the people that were uh, up in arms about saying that they don't want to be, you know, living next to them. We don't seem to care much about them. But watch those fish and maybe the odd bird flying into them. That's going to be a problem, too. I don't know. Is it? Uh, let's talk to Parker Gallant, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario, and is with us now. Hello, Parker. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. And you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. So how come wind turbines are safe for people but not safe for fish? What's going on here? Well, I was listening to your lead-in, and um, one of the things that I remember, I used to live in Scarborough, Gilwood. And uh, Toronto Hydro actually had a, had set up a MET station off the Scarborough Bluffs. Yep. And uh, there was quite um, a group that sort of uh, objected to the possibility of industrial wind turbines being off the Scarborough Bluffs. And they fought and fought, and uh, eventually they, the government backed away. And that happened to be a liberal riding as well, so I'm sure it was just a coincidence. But mm. that was kind of the start, if you will, of the of the protest about offshore wind, and, uh, and then I think the uh, the government decided, well, if we're going to cancel that one, uh, maybe we should, you know, or cancel that test that was going on. Maybe we should also cancel all offshore wind, and that's when it came about. They had uh, forgotten, though, that uh, one of those large contracts they handed out to uh, Windstream. They had both uh, a contract from the Ontario Power Authority, and they also had uh, what is known as a renewable energy approval that the Ministry of the Environment uh, had signed off on. So they had done their, all their paperwork had been organized and was in place. So that's what allowed Windstream to take this issue to NAFTA. And, uh, you know, NAFTA 
I think rightly awarded them $25 million for for their losses and their investment to that point and for their legal fees another $3 million. Where where do you think this uh, other lawsuit that uh, they face next year, the $500 million lawsuit, do you think that's going to end up the same way? No, I don't. I, I can't see uh, Trillium having any success uh, and this, they've already been to court once, and were you know basically lost the way they presented, mm-hmm. um, and so they revamped the you know the lawsuit basically, and are coming at it from a different direction. But they didn't have, I mean, they had a they had a contract from the Ontario Power Authority, but they hadn't done all their paperwork. They hadn't you know they hadn't uh, received a, a renewable energy approval. They had arranged their financing, but. I assume the financing arrangements would have been necessary in order to get your renewable energy approval because, you know, there are certain conditions that um, were, were put on anyone negotiating with the government at that time to have your ducks in order. So you had to have financing. How did we know you can, you know, build those things out in the middle of the, the lake if uh, you don't have financing to be able to do that? So. Uh, much more costly, obviously, to build them offshore than onshore. Oh yeah, they were. Um, I think they were paying originally nineteen and a half cents a kilowatt hour for generation. When, at that time, we were paying around oh, seven cents a kilowatt hour. That was the average rate. So yeah, it was almost triple what we were paying at the time. Um, but of course, they were coming in vogue in Europe, and you know, basically, we got most of what uh, has wound up in the. Uh, Green Energy Act, we got, you know, we copied Europe. We went, you know, Smitherman went to Denmark, he went to Germany, did his tours over there, and came back with all these wonderful ideas about how we could generate our power from renewable energy. So uh, why did they stop, or, or what is the slowdown in having wind farms offshore? Is it... Uh, is it strictly because a it's not needed? B the costs have just skyrocketed. Uh, uh, you know this type of generation is even more expensive than traditional uh, wind turn uh, wind turbine generation, which of course we know how people feel about that. Uh, so so what is the reason they're not? You hit the nail on the head when you said we don't need it. Yeah, I mean we're running huge surpluses now of um, you know of generation. And we last year we exported you know uh, 22, ter- uh, tw- 22 terawatts, which is about half of what all of the residences and residential users would consume in Ontario. We just don't need the additional power, even though we're going to be shutting down some of the nuclear plants to uh, refurbish them. The fact of the matter is, is we keep reducing our consumption. And uh, as we reduce our consumption, you know, we keep adding more power. So, you know. we uh, they they are going to continue. The Ontario government is going to continue this moratorium on offshore wind. Is there a a need for it? Is there be a demand for it? Are companies interested in it if it's not being subsidized? I mean, if it's that much more costly than traditional wind turbines on land? No, I don't see. Like, who, is there anybody lining up to is there in their right mind, you know, putting up an offshore wind farm uh, and hoping the government will buy the power? I mean, they, it's very costly, and and you know, you have to have it hooked up to the grid as well in case it is, you know, uh, is needed. And um, you know, it's just not needed, and not needed in the foreseeable future. I think 
the IESO independent electricity system operator has forecast that we're not going to need any new power for at least the next 10 years. And we mustn't forget, we've got a 900 uh, megawatt uh, gas turbine plant coming on stream very shortly down in the Napanee area where the one from Oakville was moved. It's right. not up and running yet. So we've got 900 megawatts coming from that. You know, and we've got a whole stack of other um, contracts, like from uh, both mainly you know wind and solar and some solar that have been signed, but they haven't you know commenced construction of them yet. So, uh, talk a little bit about that. How many of uh, are we still uh, approving these? Are there ones still in the system that have to be built? Where are we with wind turbines now? Well, they've suspended the thousand megawatts that they were going to acquire under RFP two, I think it was called. And um, but they've issued another one for smaller ones for 500 megawatts. So we're still adding and contracting for you know solar and, and wind and some bio as well. Uh, but we don't need it. The, they suspended the 1,000 megawatts. Yeah, but it's only suspended. It's not canceled. Now I don't know whether you know uh, they haven't canceled it because they suspect that they might you know let some other contracts in the future but uh wind concerns ontario recommended they cancel those and they should cancel all of the ones that are in process if you will that haven't reached sort of the construction stage because the sunk cost would be you know the you know the reports that they would have had to have obtained and the you know legal matters that they would have had to address. So the the cost of cancellation of the ones contracts that haven't broken ground yet would be nominal, half a million to you know a million dollars per project. But when you consider that if they went ahead, we'd you know be stuck with with that power for the next twenty years, and it would be like twenty, forty, fifty, sixty, hundred million dollars over those twenty that twenty years. So we don't need it. Why? Why not just cancel it completely? And pay so, off that. So money. has has construction slowed down of, of these, Parker? I mean, obviously they've canceled or suspended approval of, of more. Um, but but when will things level off? When will they stop uh, building wind turbines in in Ontario? When uh, when does the current deals run like all come to fruition? Well, some of them are, of course, in in court actions. Um, you know, so they're appearing before the uh, Environmental Review Tribunal, uh, and um, you know, the Environmental Review Tribunal uh, sometimes takes a while to sort of, you know, put, you know, make their decisions, and then uh, a lot of these are being appealed to the Superior Court, and if the Superior Court declines, and then the you know the people that are fighting these are taking it all the way up to the appeal court. You know, the uh, Prince Edward County did that with Ostrander Point, and they were successful. Ostrander Point is no longer a contract that is outstanding. And there are several others that are in this process that are going through, if you will, the legal system. The other thing that, of course, uh, has an impact is there are the Ministry of the Environment have restrictions in terms of when you can start or stop construction. As an example, migration season is an important, you know, mm-hmm. important part of the year. So unless you've kind of got things up and running um, it, before migration starts, the likelihood of you being allowed to continue to do your construction is uh, nil, right? Because the 
the ministry will be along then with the authorizations to not allow you to continue. So you'll have to wait until the fall migration possibly is, is done before you restart construction. So is it safe to say that most are in a holding pattern at this point or not? Yeah, there's a lot of them that are in holding pattern right now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, no, and in the case of Windstream, it is. It's got a valid contract. It's got the renewable energy approval. And even though they won the $28 million bucks in costs, I mean, they'd like to go ahead with it. Yeah, they the contract's because, still you know, there. They'll get that 19 and a half cents a kilowatt hour if they ever are allowed to put it up. But, you know, with the, mor- with the moratorium on doing more investigation, uh, I mean, I just, I just see that as a, uh, as a means to avoid, if you will, uh, you know, trying to fight this. So if they can say, oh, you know, we need more studies, you know, we want to find out more about what harm we can do to, we're going to do to the fish or something, it's, it's a delay tactic. So are they just more. punting this down the, down the field then? Yeah, they're just punting it down the road, exactly, yeah. Uh, are there more wind farms on liberal or in liberal or conservative ridings? Oh, there are far more in conservative ridings for sure, and uh, a few you'll find in NDP ridings too. So, yeah, they're, they've been very subtle about how these contracts are are awarded and uh, you know and who has them. But of course, if you look at the liberal ridings, most of them are in um, you know urban. A center, so you know we're not going to have we're not going to you're not going to see a lot of wind turbines in downtown Hamilton, if you yeah. will, or downtown Toronto or Ottawa or any of those places. But you know, go outside into the rural communities, and they're everywhere, as you pointed out earlier. So, how are experts looking at this moratorium on offshore wind? I mean, um, is this just another uh, question that they don't want to answer? How uh, how are um, how are people viewing this? Do they care? Uh, well, I I think people that have seen their hydro rates go up and up and up are are happy about that because they know the price is going to be high. Uh, obviously, you know the, the people behind you know Windstream and Trillium and and probably the manufacturers of the turbines themselves are and the blades, of course, and all the rest of the stuff are upset. And, you know, can we, uh, the Canadian Wind Energy Association would be ticked as well. But, um, you know, the fact of the matter is it's, it's, it's the, the community that, you know, the communities have said we don't need them, we don't want them, and they don't add, you know, they're not going to add value to, to uh, our energy system because they're going to produce wind intermittently and they're going to be unreliable. So if they're intermittent and unreliable, that means we're going to have backup. And if we have backup, it's got to be, you know, generally speaking, fossil fuels because we don't have any more hydro to develop in this province. So we're going to put more gas plants in, which are going to create more emissions. So, you know, they've, they've, uh, they've got to the point where they recognize, if you will, that uh, at least I think the liberals recognize that by adding more wind, they're going to be adding more fossil fuels. Uh, here's a question from a listener. As hydro scales down its construction, how long until the surplus hydro is used up and construction needs to start up again? How long How long before we're, we, this becomes an issue with us? Well, I, I, we are doing a fantastic job of, of uh, conserving power, right? We've reduced our 
our demand down considerably over the past, um, you know, 10 years. It's fallen incredibly. And uh, if it continues to, to show a reduction, and it should because new housing has got higher standards, better insulation, mm-hmm. uh, you know, more uh, better sealed windows and that sort of thing, that's going to save our, you know, that saves energy, believe it or not. And, you know, we're now using LED bulbs because incandescents have been banned. You know, local townships have changed their sodium lighting to LED lighting. All of these things are are occurring on a regular basis throughout the province, and that's decreasing demand. And if we've got decreased demand, you know, uh, it's going to continue to show a reduction in what we need to generate. So... You know, we're not going to need a lot of power. And as I said earlier, ISO forecasts that we're, we've got a surplus for at least the next 10 years. And by that time, we'll have the, you know, um, nuclear plants will all have, pretty well all have been refurbished. And, you know, they will be good for another 20 to 30 or 40 years. And, you know, who knows how much we will have reduced consumption by that time as well. And, you know, the other thing is, the manufacturing base we once had here, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, like Stelco and DeFasco and, and those big companies that we remember uh, in the past uh, are not hiring people. They're not, you know, using nearly as much power, and a lot of them have moved their production somewhere else. With this moratorium on wind, does that just put all of these lawsuits on hold as well? Does that cap them for now? No, I mean, you know, those, the, the lawsuits are basically on, I mean, are you talking about the uh, environmental review tribunals, or are you talking about, like, windstream? And wind, uh, off, offshore wind. Offshore? No, I, I'm sure that, that uh, Trillium is going to proceed and do what they can. I mean, I don't think windstream has signaled they're going to raise another, uh, or they're going to challenge the government again. Um, they just said, we have a valid contract. We can still do it at the price we said we could do it. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you allow us to do that? And, of course, as, I, as you said, and, and the article pointed out today in, in, uh, in uh, the paper, I mean, I guess Global News, uh, that, um, they, that they, you know, they, they have a valid contract and they want to continue, but they haven't said they're going to sue. So it's just Trillium that is. I think in that uh, position where they're going to sue, they have announced that. How do you think um, Premier Wynne's going to handle this going into the next election? Yeah, there's a lot of speculation going on as to whether she'll use tax dollars to try to get electricity pricing down or whether she'll use some of the cap-and-trade money to get it down or whether she'll just, you know, um, pull up the old shell game and sort of, you know, move things around a little bit, like, you know, the 8% rebate for the for the provincial sales tax portion of the, of the HST that she's removed. Well, where did that come from? You know, they're going to lose that, lose all that revenue. So it means the taxpayer is going to have to pick it up. So it's a shell game. It's in one pocket and out of the, you know, out of one pocket and into the other. So... I can't, I can't see her, you know, proceeding. I think she's got to somehow back off uh, this whole push. We we now have the, you know, probably one of the 
cleanest uh, electricity systems in the world, right here in the province. We produce very little generation using fossil fuels. So, you know, we've done the job. Let's move on to something else where, where, you know, where you see emissions. But, you know, the electricity sector has been beaten up enough. Leave it alone. Move on. Parker Gallant has been with us, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario. Ontario Signals Offshore Wind Moratorium will continue for years. Parker, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Well, thank you, Scott, for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right. uh, Last week, this uh, uh, came about, and, and lots were questioning why and why we continue to bail out Bombardier. Uh, the Trudeau government announced a repayable loan to Bombardier valued at $372 million. Uh, what does this mean? Some have even said that, uh, well, I think even Bombardier said that they really don't need the money. So what is going on and why does it seem that this poorly managed company seems to be always getting help from the Canadian government? To talk more about all of this, Aaron Woodrick is with us, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and on the line now. Hello, Aaron. How are you today? Good afternoon, Scott. I'm great. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. This uh, came out last week. How much does this resonate, do you think, with Canadians? Uh, How in tune are they, do you think, to the Bombardier story? Yeah, you know, I think in the case of Bombardier in particular, especially folks in Ontario and Toronto are very familiar with the company because of the headaches they've had with the streetcars. And, you know, I think Bombardier has always sort of been one of those companies that's around, but they always seem to have difficulty in the news. All Canadians hear is they're struggling, they're having difficulty. And so I think that's one of the reasons that this company, more than just about any other, you know, Canadians might be aware of uh, when it comes to, you know, Canadians bailing them out time and again. Why are they having difficulty if it seems that people are in, you know, their product are in demand. Yeah, look, uh, it doesn't seem like there's an issue with their engineering. Uh, I think really it has to come down to the management of the company, Scott. Uh, if you look at the one of the things that has them in trouble right now, the trains aside, this plane series they have, um, it's two years late and $2 billion over budget. So, I mean, when you, when you can't build your product on time or on budget, that's going to lead to serious problems for you in the marketplace. Uh, is Quebec getting special treatment? Yeah, that's something that a lot of people often point out. Uh, you know, Quebec uh, has a special place in politics in this country, and so are they are they treated, uh, you know, preferentially? Probably. I'd also point out, though, that uh, the same is true of the automakers that are mostly based in Ontario. Uh, so I think it's more an industry thing. I think there are a lot of folks in politics and elsewhere that seem to think that uh, if you're building very complex machines, uh, we need to treat you differently than just about any other kind of business. Uh, I remember last year them saying that uh, they didn't really need the money. So how did this even come about? Why are we even giving them money? Yeah, that was uh, one of the jaw-dropping statements last year. The chief uh, executive of the C-Series planes said they don't actually need the money. He said it would be nice to have. And I just sort of almost fell out of my chair thinking, you know, a lot of us, it would be nice to have a billion dollars, but if we don't need it, you know, why are you asking for it? Uh, They argued that at the time they needed it, but the situation improved. And to that I say, if your situation improved, why did you continue asking for the same amount of money? So why do they need the cash then? Oh, I think the argument is that they're going to use it to try and develop something new. And I sort of say, well, we're going to get into this vicious cycle. Again, remember, the whole reason they're in this spot is they uh, launched a development of a plane that was over budget and overdue. And so if they're going to do the same thing all over again, all it's going to mean is taxpayers are on the hook uh, years down the road as well. Is this plane something that is wanted? Is there a demand for it? 
Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard to say, Scott. Uh, you know, the accounting of the the plane itself says it's a very good plane. Apparently, it's an excellent aircraft. But uh, again, uh, no one seems to be able to want to buy it at market price. There's rumors that the planes they have sold were sold at a, a heavy discount, so possibly a loss. And you know, I, I don't think it's a sustainable business model to be selling airplanes uh, for less than they cost to make. So why don't they deserve the money, in your view? Well, I think it's a simple principle, Scott, just like any business. I mean, if you drive down the street, you see businesses come and go. Lots of Canadians lose their jobs or lose their businesses. Nobody bails them out. And if we start to get into a situation where we say, well, it's a really big company, so we have to help them, um, we've been doing that for 50 years with Bombardier, Scott. This is not the first time. Uh, at some point, you have to say, look, uh, it, your company is a money pit, and unless you're able to shape up and, and uh, stand on your own two feet, it's not up to Canadians to bail you out every time. Why has this become one of those jewels that Canadians uh, seem to value? Why? And again, it seems to be a successful company. I mean, their products seem to sell, uh, no matter you know from what end of the one end of the scale to the other. So, is it just bad management? Is it a company that realizes if it does get in trouble, it will get a bailout of some sort? I think so. It's about learned behavior, right? If you are an individual or you're running a company that knows that no matter what you do because of your special place, uh, that the government's going to come running to the rescue, you're more likely to take, you know, risks. And, uh, and you know, that can cost a lot of money. So, uh, look, at the end of the day, Scott, I think it's uh, people think airplanes are different than any other business. It's true that their competitors are subsidized. But, you know, I often point out the fact their competitors are subsidized uh, has nothing to do with the fact they can't build their own planes on time or on budget. How is this company viewed on the world stage? We certainly know the problems that Toronto is having trying to get uh, uh, delivery of its streetcars. Now, I understand there's very many divisions of this company, and this isn't the division, I guess, that got the loan. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but again, like we've certainly known for a while that you know, they, they can't seem to deliver. Why does, does the government have any sort of condition, any sort of uh, investigation as to why this, this company seems to keep failing when it seems to succeed in other ways? Yeah, you know, it's not clear what the government actually got out of this deal. Back when they asked for the uh, for the bailout, the government seemed to take a pretty hard line, which we supported. They sort of said, look, you've got to uh, give up control. Uh, a lot of people don't know Bombardier is controlled by a small family in Quebec. as a dual-class structure, and so this small family uh, controls the company, and the government said, well, you have to give that up if you want money. And they said no. And I'm sort of thinking, why is it taxpayers' job uh, to bail out the fact uh, that this one small company, uh, one small family in Quebec wants to retain control? You know, most businesses, uh, I think there are a lot of people out there that would like to invest in Bombardier if they could actually buy shares to get controlling stake in it, but they can't. I asked earlier, how is this company viewed on the world stage? Are they reputable? Are they known to, to, to make delivery dates, this sort of thing? Yeah, again, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, they're one of a handful of aircraft makers. There's maybe only a dozen in the world. Um, and, you know, in terms of the engineering, their planes seem to be good quality. But this isn't the first time we've had this issue. We had a situation in, in London, England, where the mayor was berating them for not delivering plane, uh, trains on time. There have been other situations around the world. So, you know, I'm not going to suggest it's unique to Bombardier. I'm sure it happens to many aircraft makers. But the question is always, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that that happens. Why is it the job of Canadian taxpayers to pick up the pieces? What is needed for this company to straight now what from where you sit what has to be done here I think market discipline. I think if this company is finally weaned off, I mean, by all accounts, they have good engineers and good people working there. Uh, if they got new management uh, and shook things up, you know, there might be a chance they could actually start to deliver their stuff on time and on budget. Uh, do you think this uh, harms them from a PR standpoint? The fact, or or is it the fact that it's just you know it's a Canadian-owned company, it's a family company that ca- that, that that carries a lot of cachet. 
Look, I think it does hurt them. Uh, look, uh, I think in a perfect world, we'd all love to have homegrown champions that do well. And myself, I, I have no problem with Bombardier doing well. I'd love to see them do well. But when you're a company that has to constantly come back to the government with your handout, I don't think that sends a very strong signal to shareholders or customers that you're doing things well if you always are relying on bailouts to get to stay alive. As you mentioned earlier, they said in regard to this C-Series plane that they didn't need the money. How, how did it get to the point when someone says that, that a check is actually presented? How does that happen? <laughs> well, I think it's the short answer is politics in this country, Scott. Uh, uh, they, they are treated very specially. The normal rules of business that most Canadians who own small businesses, those rules don't apply to Bombardier. They can essentially get away with it. You know, if there's any silver lining here, it's that they did get a lot less than they asked for. So I think even the government realized it was just not defensible to give them a billion dollars. And hopefully that sends a signal to other businesses that it's not going to be uh, it always has been, which is, you know, show up to Ottawa, beg for money, and uh, and they're going to hand it over. What does the future look like for Bombardier? I mean, is it secure? Is it is it still flimsy? I mean, what? how does this company move forward? forward. Well, I, I don't want to say that I can predict with any certainty, Scott, but this is a company that has literally received money since 1966. So uh, over a half century, they have been receiving tax dollars. So I'm confident this isn't going to be the last time. I would love if it wasn't. I would be the first one to stand up and cheer if Bombardier was making piles of money and didn't need tax dollars. But unfortunately, the track record suggests that it's more likely they're going to be back for more soon. Uh, obviously, Quebec, when uh, people question this kind of money going to a, a private business, a private family company, company like uh, Bombardier, uh, Quebecers will, Quebec politicians will look to Ontario and the money that they received uh, in the form of an auto sector bailout. Yeah. Is, that fra- is that fair? Is that comparable? Yeah, it actually is. But that's actually the reason, Scott, that this, this type of bailout is so dangerous, is it just sets the precedent for the next one. In fact, the Premier of Quebec, when he was arguing Bombard should get its bailout, he acknowledged that the auto bailout cost taxpayers $3.7 billion. But he's able to say, you know what, if you're willing to lose that money in Ontario, you should be willing to lose the money in Quebec. And then, of course, next time uh, someone else needs a bailout, they'll be pointing to Bombardier saying, look, you help them, you have to help us too. That being said, uh, the money that they lent to the auto sector, was that not a good investment in your view? Well, I guess how it depends how you measure investment. As I say, when, when all the dust settled, taxpayers lost $3.7 billion on that transaction. So it's hard to see how in the private sector anyone would argue that losing $3.7 on what we're calling an investment would be considered a good result. So, in other words, uh, tit for tat as far as Ontario and Quebec, if one gets one, one should get the other? Well, that seems to be the argument, and it's a strong one politically, right? I think it's very easy for premiers to say, hey, you helped that province, why don't you help me? And as I say, you have to stop somewhere, because otherwise you're just setting yourself up uh, for the next demand. Will Bombardier generate as much, as if in, in, will Bombardier generate as much for Quebec as uh, the auto industry will for uh, Ontario by this bailout? I mean, certainly, certainly we've seen the Ontario auto industry do well, and, and anybody that would say uh, in retrospect about giving money to the industry to support it would probably say, yeah, good thing they did it, it's still there and it's still economical. Yeah, look, it's, it's, uh, the, the hard thing to say is that we don't actually know what happened. Would they have actually gone under without it? You know, uh, nobody likes to see jobs disappear. I think that's pretty obvious. But you also have to not treat uh, – government can't run around investing in every business. There is some picking. Um, we can't sort of treat it like it's a casino. You know, just because you win a jackpot once doesn't mean you say, well, I should go every day and gamble. Uh, that gets really risky. And again, these are tax dollars, Scott. These are, these are not private individuals. We pay our taxes because we expect – 
things in return, like roads and schools and hospitals. If you're spending that money on an airplane company, uh, it means you can't spend it on other stuff instead. How do you think this will play come election time? Well, look, uh, this is a government that has said that they're going to do things differently than their predecessors. Uh, And frankly, every government for the last 50 years has been handing out corporate welfare, so it's not specifically a liberal thing. Uh, But they're going to have a hard time arguing that they're doing business differently if they're essentially handing out checks the same way that the previous government did. Aaron Woodrick has been with us, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Last week, the Trudeau government announced a repayable loan to Bombardier valued at over $370 million. Uh, What will this do for Canada and, of course, things moving forward? Aaron, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. President Trump and... Did you notice how uh, Justin Trudeau just had a hard time looking at him and saying president. I even have a hard time saying, mind you, I still have a hard time saying Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, they had their giant uh, meeting today, first time, and of course a press conference, which we just aired live uh, moments from now. Uh, he'll be meeting with uh, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell over the course of the afternoon and then flies back to uh, Ottawa around 6 o'clock tonight. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, Principal Alyssa PR Communications. She is with us now. Hello, Alyssa. How are you today? Hello, Scott. So How what did you, you think I'm of the fine. big... Uh, that, I'm, I'm glad you're here. So uh, what, what did you think of the big conference? What did you think of big, the big press conference? What, what did the body language tell you? Well, I think that they were being very, very cordial. It was a very Canadian, wouldn't you say? I mean, I didn't. I've never seen Trump being so soft. You know, and I think he wanted to make a point when you know there's been all this noise about NAFTA and how he's going to treat the you know the trading partners. And I think one of the things that we understood clearly is that he has more trouble with those south of the border than he does north of the border. Uh, so why, how do you explain the softer approach by, uh, Donald? He, he seemed to just even having Trudeau next to him seemed to soften him a bit. Am I reading too much into this? You know, I think it's very interesting when you look at the, let's like step back a bit and just know that the meeting today has had weeks and weeks and weeks of preparation. So nobody came in there not knowing what the other one was going to say. And that the end result was that they were going to have a very positive press conference. So for weeks prior to this, many of them, you know, Trudeau's operatives have been going down to the states, including Christian Freeland, meeting with key senators, key staffers, and they had a very good idea on what really mattered to Trump in his conversations with Trudeau and vice versa. And one of the things that I found really interesting was that, yes, there are some, there are still some points where they disagree with, you know, for example, um, refugees. However, Trudeau was really, really smart. He did find one point where they could absolutely both agree, and that is taking care of the middle class. Yeah. Both of them uh, campaigned on that. Both of them campaigned on promising uh, a better country, a better life, better jobs uh, for the middle class, and that is something you can agree on. And any time you enter a meeting with somebody that you don't know and you know that future negotiations are going to ensue, you need to find that point of commonality so that you can actually have negotiations. And the point of commonality was this. So when you go down and, you know, you do all this pre-work and they find out, you know, what's, what are they going to agree to disagree and what can they actually agree on, they found a point where they can both agree. And from there, perhaps that sort of took the edge off any contentious 
thoughts that um, Trump may have had around Canada. So in other words, we're all trying to do the right thing for the same people. We just have different ways of uh, approaching it. I, and I mean, you know, even one of the questions from the press and, and the, the, the two or three questions that they took were all very good. Um, and, and, and basically pointing out, look, you guys are so polar opposite. How can you make this work? And they did do a good job of dancing around that, didn't they? Well, they did. And I think that it was interesting because the one reporter did um, very pointedly uh, mention about refugees and how, you know, Trump was to keep them out and Trudeau was seen hugging them and handing out winter coats. So Exactly. You know, like talk- at that point, it almost seemed very awkward in the press conference. Well, it did. But, you know, nobody was going to call each other out in a very, very pointed way. So yeah. whenever you talk about that um, with respect to Trump, he's going to say, listen, I'm already getting the bad guys out. And these are basically hardened criminals that they were going to deport anyway. So, you know, he's taking credit for that. So that's fine. Um, whereas, you know, what Trudeau says, he says, you know what? The last thing I am going to do is to come down to somebody else's country and tell them how to govern. Yeah. So what he was saying was, is we do have differing opinions about uh, refugees and immigration. Uh, he understands where I come from, and I can see, not necessarily agree with, but I can see where Trump comes from. But I'm not going to get, tell him... Uh, how to run his country, nor is he going to tell me how to run my country. And I thought that that was a great way to uh, to diffuse that particular issue. It was rehearsed, but great way to diffuse that particular issue. Did each one of these leaders keep their bases happy? I think so. I mean, you know, Trump keeps going back to his talking point. I told you what I was going to do, and I said I was going to do what I was going to do. That's what I campaigned on, and that's what I won on. So there was a lot of reiteration of that. You know, that seems to be the fallback message, and, you know, that's what his handlers have told him. You know, when in doubt, go back to, well, that's what you voted me in for. Mm -hmm. And he does do that. So while he knows that not everybody agrees with what he's doing, he's actually using, uh, continues to use the fact that, well, I won the election, so I'm going to tell you what I told you I was going to do. Uh, Lots of critics of Trudeau have said that he hasn't been tough enough uh, in his language when uh, talking about Trump or or what's been going on in the United States. Uh, How do you think they'll respond to his dealing with Trump today? tell you, I thought that Trudeau was very measured. I thought he was very diplomatic. This is our, and they both emphasize, you know, we are each other's very important uh, trading partner, um, even more so for Canada, Trump mentioned. And Trudeau is not going to say anything that will jeopardize any future negotiations. So, you know, this may all be window dressing, and maybe they will come down hard on NAFTA, but to start negotiations off on an you know, an angry plateau will get you absolutely nowhere. So it's fine for people to say he should be harder, he should say this, he should say that. Listen, you know, Canadians and Americans alike are, are talking all about the negative negativity on that. Trudeau doesn't need to do that. He has to remain diplomatic. He did um, continue to uh, reiterate the fact that, you know, the uh, policies on immigration are vastly different. Um, He's going to run his country one way, and Trump is going to run that another. But to go in there and be openly antagonistic, what is that going to do for the future? Hmm. You know, maybe he will down the road when all of this window dressing comes off. But right now, as a, a first meeting... That's not how you do negotiations. 
Uh, do you think they conveyed to everybody that uh, everybody should settle down? This relationship is bigger than both of us. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And I think that uh, other than you know the middle class uh, issue that they both had in common, they also both emphasized. And it's interesting that Trudeau did this because I think he's more of a pacifist than a warmonger. But we have shed blood together. We've uh, been yeah. on collective defense together. Um, this will continue to uh, strengthen our alliance. So again, another point of commonality that, um, you know, Canada has been very influential in peacekeeping and uh, in worldwide conflict. And that's something that would appeal to Trump. So by saying, listen, we're out there, we're not not saying this, and, we're, and you know, we're not uh, putting our heads in the sand when it comes to world conflict, we are out there and we are on the front lines. So that was also um, a very important uh, distinction and a commonality between the two countries. Did anybody else find it bizarre that they're having a meeting with uh, women business executives during this uh, meeting? Like it just, Well, what I, was I'm, that all about? I know, I'm hearing these words coming out of Trump's mouth. I don't think I've ever heard him I'm speak like, that positively what? about I, I, women. Unless his handlers thought, you know, you know, Trudeau is all about uh, gender equality. You know, yeah. why are there capture the warm and fuzzy women? It's 2015. So yeah. that was a, a big narrative coming out of his win. So perhaps the um, the Trump the Trump condescent I said, you know. Uh, Trudeau is all about gender. Maybe a point where you t- can agree on with him is that you also think that gender is important, given your you know, considerably horrible record, you know, regarding women. I like women, too, just in a different way. Yeah, you know, so, yeah, I respect (laughs) women, you know, the kind that bring in money and can help our economy. (laughs) So I was, you know, taking notes, Scott, and I'm thinking as I'm typing it out, thinking, huh? Yeah. You know, where where did this come from? So, yeah. you know, maybe a lot of the commentary and other pundits will say, you know, the same thing. But well, we are wondering, you know, what's he going to bring? Is he going to bring maple syrup? Is he going to bring whiskey? Is he going to he's bringing Canadian business women with him? Well, look at who would have thought the fact that he brought women was also a ploy. What do I know? Were well, they all good looking women? I'm, I'm kidding. I, but, I, I couldn't say it, but I certainly set it up for you, too. Yeah, I know you did. I walked right in there. But. <laughs> You know, also, the other thing that I wanted to point out was what was the icebreaker that Trudeau uh, started with when he opened up the press conference? And I absolutely just laughed out loud. He and talked about the weather. Oh, the weather. And yeah, I, mean, yeah, I just yeah. thought, I even tweeted, yeah. how Canadian. <laughs> yeah, good point. That went right over my head, but good point. It was, oh, you know, you yeah. know, it's so nice to be here in Washington. It's so much warmer, especially as... You know, our maritime provinces yeah. are being hit with uh, very horrible weather, and my thoughts go out to them. You know, such a Canadian uh, thing to say, to talk about the weather, as we often say that's all people talk about, um, or one of the main things that people talk about when there's, when there's a particular weather issue. But I thought it, kind of, it was kind of funny that um, Trudeau brought it in as part of his narrative, or even at least as an icebreaker. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, Principal Alyssa PR Communications. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Okay, Scott, thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.